we launch into um, On His Mark. We took a sabbatical for two months for the uh, Advent series and then for Pure Religion in January. You should have received a copy of the notes as you came in for On His Mark. I have two points today that I want to bring uh, as quickly as possible and to just invite the Holy Spirit to continue doing what He was doing in our worship this morning. But I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time, if you would, please. And let's find a screen to read our text. Let's get us reminded of what we've been doing for a number of months prior to December. And that was Mark 10:45 as our series text. We all have it memorized by now out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, that says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so deliberately for some shock value and to try to get us back connected to this series today, I, I picked it in a different version. I'd like you to find a screen and read out loud with me if you would please. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away His life in exchange for many who were held hostage. Bow your hearts with me please. Spirit of God, thank you for your work today in this place. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that He has done for us. Thank you that it's not about anything that we do to earn it, but it's all about recognizing what Jesus Christ has already done and accomplished in the finished work. Lord, we just open our hearts to you today and we humble them. We ask you to teach us, Holy Spirit, only what you can do. I acknowledge before you and everyone in this room that I am nothing apart from you and I cannot do anything, but Holy Spirit, you can. Move today. Open ears to hear. Open eyes to see. Lord, strengthen lame legs to walk. We're not just asking for spiritual symbolism. Lord, certainly we want to, we believe the greatest miracle is when someone's born again into the kingdom of God and they were blind, but now they see spiritually. But God, we ask you for miraculous, even in the natural. Lord, that even as the gospel goes forth, that no man can take any credit for it, but it's the gospel of God, the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the word of the Lord as it goes forth. Lord, to heal people's bodies, to, to, to change situations and relationships, to, Lord, to men, broken hearts and families. God, we will be careful to give you all the praise because you are God. You're our Savior and our Shepherd and our Guide. We, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. For our message text today, we're looking at the passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 11 that commonly refers to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm going to look at 11 verses and just as some preliminary introductory remarks, I just want to say that every one of the Gospels will give themselves to the three and a half year ministry of Jesus and then it will devote a significant portion, a number of chapters to the things that take place within the last week. If you're in the Gospel of John, it's from about the middle of chapter 12 in John through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, which carries you all the way through the last, that is all about the last week of Jesus' ministry, where he is gathering with the disciples into an upper room, instituting the Passover in the sense of communion for the Lord's table. Uh, he shares with them three amazing chapters concerning the, the work of the Holy Spirit who is to come when He goes away. It's expedient for you. He said that I go away, that I may send you another comforter. Well, the same thing is going on here in the Gospel of Mark from 
Mark 11, as he enters into Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry, normally this message would be preached on Palm Sunday, one week before the resurrection. But we have so much ground to cover in the Gospel of Mark. We have 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. The resurrection is in chapter 16. So between this morning and April 20th, we're going to cover Mark 11 through 16. We'll be preaching 16th chapter, the first few verses, on Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, April the 20th. So we're planning it so that this thing can, can hit about that time. And then the next Sunday, we'll be preaching the Great Commission. So as we look to Mark chapter 11, I'm reading from verses 1 through 11 out of the message. Uh, you just, just read silently along with me. Here we go. When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany on Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. King James and the ESV both say, one on which never has a man sat. Okay, interesting. Untie it and bring it. And he gets them ready with a response, knowing that someone is going to ask. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him, and we will return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door at the street corner and untied it. Some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples replied exactly as Jesus had instructed them, and the people let them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus, spread their coats on it, and he mounted. The people gave him a wonderful welcome, some throwing their coats on the street, others spreading out rushes that they had cut in the fields. Running ahead and following after, they were calling out, Hosanna. Everybody say, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Very similar to the Hebrew, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in other words. Bless the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. They say it again. Hosanna in highest heaven. He entered Jerusalem, then entered the temple. He looked around, taking it all in, but by now it was late, so he went back to Bethany with the twelve. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And all of God's people said, Amen. just to review this morning, to get you back into the flow and the thinking of the Gospel of Mark, this period, this history-making, life-changing period in which the Son of Man comes, not at the beginning of time, the beginning of history, not at the end of time, but in the very middle, so that it becomes the vortex. It becomes the hinge point, the pivot upon which all of history swings back and forth. He, his coming became the Passover for us, and His life became the beginning of months, even as Moses said in the book of Exodus. They began to count a new year from the time they entered into the promised land from the day when they were delivered from Egypt by the blood, the water, and the spirit, by the application of the Lamb's blood over their doorpost. And it, was the, it marked a new year. They said, this is the first month. 
civil year, they were in the third month, but they said, no, this is the beginning of a new time. This is what happens when someone comes to Christ and Jesus becomes the Passover lamb over your life. It's the beginning of months. It's a new year. It, it marks your life in the same way that he does literally in time, everything being B.C. before Christ and after that moment, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Domini, you see the word dominion and domini. Anno Domini, it's the idea of a king who's in ruling power. Our review is that religion offers advice, particularly man-made, man-centered kind of religion. Religion that is all about what I can do to earn or deserve or appease whatever God that I've chosen to call God. As civilizations began to grow, and I teach world civilization on the college level, and one of the things that marks is an earmark of the beginning of a civilization is the uh, application of agricultural techniques and domestication of animals. They start to, in an ordered way, begin to grow crops and populations begin to grow. And when populations begin to grow because they're eating better and they're healthier, they begin to gather in cities. And cities where you have storehouses of food require that you protect your storehouses of food so that hordes uh, of evil enemies won't come and take it from you. And so you start to see the rise of a kind of a police uh, uh, a government protection, maybe an army, and someone's usually calling the shots, and you have a king. You have a king or an emperor or a monarch or uh, a, a dictator, some kind of a leader who's leading that particular civilization. And as we see the civilization that opens in the Scripture, we see the recognition that is so different among the Hebrews from all the other civilizations around the world that are all looking because there's something built into man to seek after the transcendent. book of Ecclesiastes... Uh, uh, the writer, King Solomon, said, God has set eternity into the hearts of men. And there is something in each and every one of us that yearns and longs to connect with something transcendent. Many times we take multiple paths looking for various ways in order to assuage the, the guilt of our own conscience and to find a, a kind of peace within ourselves and peace with God, even though we might not have the name or we might not be able to declare who that God is. And so man has been in pursuit in making religions. And as civilizations begin to grow, we have a priestly class and we have a named God and we have rituals that are put into place. Israel stood out from the rest of the other world because they were literally one among all of this plethora of nations that were worshiping multiple gods. They were polytheistic and Israel was different as a Hebrew people called by God with Abraham as their father of their faith. And they stood and recognized that it was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that the God that they worship and serve. And it was the God who had revealed himself again to Moses to say, I'm the same one who tapped on the shoulder of your great, 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 great grandfather all the way back there named Abram. And I changed his name to Abraham. And it was an understanding of serving one God, the God above all gods, God with a capital G. But man doesn't identify and necessarily find the right God, and so he's just looking, he's seeking, and so he devises all kinds of religions, and religion offers advice. This is what you can do to keep, quote, your God happy. Behave this way, act this way. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Learn to do that. And so it becomes a whole to-do list of things that shouldn't be done and things that should be done and you always seem to be under the weight of a law and a legalism that continuously separates you from the peace that you seek and it's always a carrot in front of the donkey out there in front of you that you're reaching trying to get a hold of it and can't quite grasp it. 
And that's religion for you. Religion will offer advice. But what we stand in a complete contradistinction this morning is that the, the gospel that comes about Jesus Christ is not just offering you advice, but the very word gospel means good news. It is, it is a record of what has already happened. Religion is about advice that tells you what you can do, you should do, and you ought to do. But the gospel is about what one has already done and he's already finished it. He's already met every requirement that the holy God has set forth and he stood in our place and he took your place in mine and he died for you. Come on somebody. That's the gospel. We study it in the Greek world and the Roman Empire. The, the Greek word euangelion literally means and it is used in times when a conqueror comes back in terms of the stories of conquest. The Gospel according to Julius Caesar is a historical. The gospel according to Alexander the Great. That's how this would be used in the time which was first written. So when we start to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we get in the world in the context in which that word was given, we realize that we're talking about a conquering one who's come and it's the testimony, it's the, it's the laudatory expression, it's the praise, it's the remarks of all the amazing things that this conquering king has accomplished. He has already done. It is finished. Give me the next slide. This is the definition that we've been working with for a few months before we went into Christmas. Read this out loud with me. Say, the gospel is the history-making, life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. Say it again. Come on, here we go. The gospel is the history-making, life-changing, good news of Jesus Christ. How about some good news? Do you like some good news? I love it. So we have four records of the good news, the history-making, life-changing, good news of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage of Scripture referred to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I want to bring two points quickly to you this morning. The first one is the dominion of Christ. Everybody say the dominion. Say the word dominion. dominion. So that A.D., that, that the, the way that we mark our time now is Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord, Domini, dominion. So when we talk about the dominion of Christ, we're talking about His authority and His power and His wisdom and His knowledge and all of these different things that wrap up together. His goodness and His holiness and His mercy and His majesty and all of these things that are... That are little pieces of the description of his overarching, great panoramic view of the dominion of Christ. It's an, it's an interesting word because when we talk about dominion, it is definitely related to the kingdom of God because in the word kingdom, you see on the very end, the, the first three words of dominion. It's D-O-M, kingdom. And so we see that it's an idea of a ruler with absolute authority as a king, the dom on the, on the end is, is the shortened version of the domain. He is king over a domain. The domain is the geography over which he rules and the people who live in that geography, that land. Now, the enemy has been trying to lie to people for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years to tell you that the earth belongs to Satan. And I want to tell you that that is as ever bit of much a lie as it ever has been. And the Bible consistently declares, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all they that dwell therein, the world and all they. So 
God owns the place, the dirt, the water, the air, everything that makes up the material aspect of this planet made specifically for the purpose to house the creatures and the, over which man was supposed to subdue and fill the earth with himself as an image bearer, as a representative of God himself. And we blew it. Adam committed high treason. He reached for the thing, the one thing that God said, you can have everything in this garden, but that one thing, leave it alone. And Adam and Eve reached for it and the heavens were closed and God dismissed them from the classroom of Eden and sent them out into a world where order has now become chaos, where beauty of Eden has become ugliness, and where the abundance of Eden has now become scarcity. And we're driven in a world where scarcity is the economic concept that defines who we are. And we live out of a fear that I'm not going to have enough. Am I going to have enough for my retirement? Am I going to have enough to pay my, forget retirement, I can't pay my bills this week, next Sunday. And we start to live out of that scarcity because once we have left the place of abundance and order and beauty that is found in Eden and we move into a world where the ground itself is cursed with thorns and thistles and we must draw up the planting of the ground by the sweat of our brow and we must labor and it's under a curse then we begin to continue to live under the idea that the devil's got this whole thing in his back pocket. How many of you know God is God in spite of your circumstances? Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. We've observed now for three and a half years, probably five months and three weeks, it's about to be the completion of the sixth month, the three and a half years, and Jesus is going to go to the cross. The, the, everybody that's traveling down this little cobblestone road that I've had the privilege of walking on uh, out of this area, coming down the Mount of Olives and down into the valley and then back up on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Israel. It's a, just a phenomenal sense of going, wow, 2,000 years ago people were in the streets and Jesus came riding in on a donkey and they threw their coats out there and over the donkey and Jesus mounted that donkey on which no man had ever sat before and they're, they're cutting branches and they're waving palms and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And I'm thinking about that. It was back in 08 when I went to Israel and uh, after finishing my graduate studies and, and had that week over there with just some amazing other pastors and friends and worshiping together in the upper room and standing in the tomb where, where he was, where he was laid, and where, he, where it's, it's empty and he's not there, and just worshiping God and recognizing the, 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 the reality of this thing that we, we have is actually rooted in history and time and space, and it's not just a nice idea about some mythological person, but about a real man who lived in history and his name is Jesus. And just thinking about that, think, of, think with me along with these disciples who've watched this guy for three and a half years 
bring to them in the middle of this world of ugliness and chaos, lacking beauty and order and scarcity is all around. And everywhere this guy walked, he brought a garden plot, planted a little spot, and he began to recover Eden into the lives and the hearts of every, <laughs> every one of those men and women. And, 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 and when debilitating disease had racked the joints and the bones and the, uh, of someone who'd never walked before, Jesus stretched out his hand and picked him up. And for the very first time, Eden entered into the heart of a man who had always been broken and, and ugly and scarce and racked with fear and God poured out His holy presence and His spirit. Come on. Where there was lack, Jesus borrowed a lunch from a little boy with five loaves and two fish and He who lacks nothing touched that stuff and He fed 20,000 people with it. And there is no lack. There, there is every bit of beauty in the image of God and there is order when the presence of Jesus just comes into a life. It can, it can just be racked with darkness and the, light, the slightest little glimmer of a candle from the presence of God comes into a person's life and radically changes and turns things around. And these disciples had been watching this happen over and over and They'd been in a boat one time heading across the Sea of Galilee and a thunderstorm came up and Jesus is over there with his head laid on a pillow and they wake him up in a shake going, don't you care about us? And he rubs the sleepy from his eyes. And the one who created the trees that made the boat that was riding on the water stood up and spoke to the elements of nature and he said, peace be still. And the wind and the waves had to obey him. We're talking about the authority of Christ, the dominion, the rule, the government. This same one who had demonstrated that where there is ever is scarcity, if you just have the presence of the Son of Man, it becomes a place of abundance. This one who said, I have come that you might have life and have it more what? Abundantly. Eden-like, in other words. Back to the garden. To set in order chaos. To, to beautify what is ugly. To pour out abundance in the place of your own personal scarcity. That's the message of the gospel right there. And they'd watched it happen over and over and over again. And every one of those disciples at this point were convinced that this was the king. He was going to Jerusalem and we would crown him king and he would take over the Roman government and topple them. They were right about him being king, but they didn't have a clue about how he was going to do the job. Forget this idea about him going to a cross, dying on a cruel tree, and by his submission to the hands of cruel, angry men spread out his hands and died and said, It is finished, tetelestai, paid in full, paid for the sins of humanity, for the whole world, all those who had lived and died and all those who were yet to be born. Jesus' blood paid the sins of humanity. Come on, somebody give God some praise. The Savior of the world. This Christ tells them, head on down there to the village and there's a donkey tied to a post in the place where two ways meet. As they head out and this story unfolds, we see that this is the fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah who had prophesied after the exile. They were brought back from Babylonian captivity and every one of these amazing snippets 
the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the books of the law, the books of poetry, the kings and the chronicles and the prophesying by all of the major and the minor prophets had all given us glimpses and pictures of this one who was to come, the suffering servant of Jehovah, the reigning king, every one of them giving us a different snapshot, a different glimpse, a pose, a different side of the profile of Jesus. And this one that came out of Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's just so amazing when we start to talk about all these elements of the dominion of Christ, his authority, he who knows everything. Jesus is God in the flesh and He has every characteristic of Godness that His Father has. He is omniscient. He knows all things. In a town He's not even in, He knows there's going to be a colt that's tied in a doorway in a place where two ways meet. And He says, boys, two of you, head over there and go untie that colt. And oh yeah, when they ask you what you're doing, tell them the Lord needs it. Now, let's get this real this morning because let's get out of this little Bible school fantasy land Everybody, you drove into the mall today and you parked your car. And I'm sure you feel so good about the crime rate in West Memphis that you all left the doors unlocked and the keys in the ignition, didn't you? You're sitting here and you start to hear a horn go off and you go, you get up to go see what's going on and somebody's getting in your car and about to drive off and you say, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord needs it. Now that kind of makes it a little bit more real to you, doesn't it? See, it's just like we get in this sort of uh, Ben-Hur kind of riding around in a chariot kind of mentality that just everything is sort of scripted. They didn't know what was going to happen in the next second. They just knew Jesus told them, hey, when they ask, go ahead and tell them the Lord needs it. Well, I don't know if they're going to beat us up. They're going to shoot an arrow through our heart. What are they going to do? But when they did what Jesus said do, the man responded the way Jesus said he was going to respond. It's the authority of Christ to speaks a word and changes lives. Who knows where your donkey is? He knows where your car is. He knows where that thing you lost this week and haven't found yet. He knows exactly where it is. And all you have to do is pray and say, Holy Spirit, I know you know. Show me. People, I've done that innumerable amount of times when I would get all upset over a credit card that was missing or a wallet or car keys or something. And I would stop and pray and I would say, Holy Spirit, you know where they are. And I would just forget it and go about my business and within five minutes I would think it would come to me and go, go check there and I would go right there and that's where they would be, whatever I was looking for. There's nothing lost in the kingdom of God. That is if we're operating out of, an, of a perspective of abundance or if we're being grappled in fear because of scarcity. Because wherever the king is, there's abundance. So here he comes riding into town on the back of a donkey and Amazingly enough, the owners said, okay, fine, you can take it. Little did they know that the one who was going to ride it was the one who actually spoke that life of that donkey into existence. And he comes riding on the back of a donkey, and it's literally a picture of the office of Christ. He's coming as the Prince of Peace because in uh, ancient civilizations of the Middle East or the Eastern altogether, if a conqueror comes to town on the back of a horse, they know there's going to be a battle. Because a horse is indicative of he's got his sword drawn and there's going to be bloodshed before the day's over. But he doesn't ride into town on a horse. He rides into town on a little 
just kind of slightly trotting along, almost how donkeys just sort of almost stumble along down the street. So it's a picture of the Prince of Peace who's coming to town. He's coming to restore the shalom that has been lost, the wholeness, the peace, the presence of God that has been lost to the creation. Come on, somebody say amen. Contrast this with how he's going to ride back into town in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, on a white horse with a vesture on his thigh. It says, Word of God, it's been dipped in blood. It, the power of Christ is here because he chooses a donkey. Now, some of you in the room have grown up on some farms and you know what it's like to have a horse that you have to break before you're going to put somebody on the back of that horse to ride or a, or a mule for that matter or a donkey. Now, if, if, if this donkey never has had somebody ride it, I love the King James that says, on which never a man has sat. Think about that. Something that's never been broken, usually the first ride is going to be a humdinger. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, this wasn't Jesus' first rodeo. <laughs> the donkey took his creator on his back and he rode with dignity into town to bring the approaching Prince of Peace who would be the King of Kings. The wisdom of Christ. He said, go over there into a street, at a street corner, on a, on a place where two ways meet and you will find this donkey. And I want you to think about this this morning. As he rides into town, all of these people are responding and screaming and shouting and they've cut down branches and rushes from the fields and they're throwing down their own coats. It is a picture of their own life identity. My coat is sort of my outer garment. It, it, it identifies who I am. In the end of Mark chapter 10, Blind Bartimaeus, when Jesus healed him, he threw down his beggar's garment because he was defined by his clothing in the very same way that a priest in the city would wear a certain kind of clothing and a king would wear a certain kind of clothing and a farmer would wear a certain kind of clothing and they're all throwing their cloaks down, laying down their identity for one that is greater, one who is king, one who is Lord. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Is what they're screaming still with no idea on how his kingdom is going to come. They, they don't, wouldn't even think about this concept of him going to a cross and bleeding and dying for them. They're thinking he's going to march into Jerusalem and this one who calmed the storm with his own word and who multiplied the food by his own hand would raise that hand and lift his voice and he would topple the Roman government. Jesus is going to topple it all right, but he's not going to do it the way they're expecting him to. And so... He who owns everything was born into the world and into a borrowed stable because there was no room in the inn. His little tiny body was wrapped in cloths, just rags to keep him warm and laid into a borrowed manger. He grows up and he begins his ministry and he preaches from a borrowed boat. He feeds 20,000 with a borrowed lunch, five loaves and two fish. He feeds his disciples the last week of his ministry for, uh, in, in a borrowed upper room where he institutes the Lord's table. We call it communion in the church. He rides into town to be pronounced the one coming in the name of the Lord on the back of a borrowed donkey, this creator who owns all things. And so I ask you the question this morning, what is my right response to see 
this God-man, this king, this Messiah, this king, this priest who, has, who knows everything, who is able to speak a word. My second point and I'm finished. The dominion of Christ is amazing. It, it fascinates me to see how great and how awesome and how wonderful this amazing God is we serve. And that's the reason that I believe we should never be bound to, well, we've got to click off these three or four songs or however we do it. But if it's when he just decides to move and touch a heart and show up that we can honor him in the very same way that if we were visited this morning in this room by the president, everything in the room would stop. We would wait to hear what he had to say. And so we would, we would defer. And so when, when we see that happen in our services, and I believe the more our hearts are attuned and the more we come in with, a, with an attitude of expectation and faith, the more we're going to, to see the Lord do things that will absolutely blow our minds to change lives, to set people free from bondage and addiction and get them saved and get them born into the kingdom of God and fill them with His Holy Spirit. How many of you want some of that? I want some of that. Amen. Hallelujah. What is my right response? Second point, the response of man. This Messiah, this King, this priest. I have one question and I'm going to close. Put the question up if you would, guys. How does the dominion of Christ apply to me? My only real true response is just to worship. To fall in His presence and just to worship because He's so worthy. And as somebody said one time, don't let what's wrong in your life keep you from worshiping what's right about Him. I'm going to say that again. Don't let what's wrong in your life currently keep you from worshiping what is amazingly right about Him because He is perfection. And the crazy thing is that in all of that perfection we can sing boldly, Oh, how He loves us. He is jealous for our hearts. Oh, how He loves us. Think about this. How does this dominion of Christ to apply, apply to me? The same God-man who said over in a village there is a little donkey tied to a post in a place where two ways meet. Before the foundation of the world in eternity past, He looked and saw your life and He saw you sitting here in this room on February the 9th, 2014. Somebody here is here today out of a true... Sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to encourage you to inject some faith into your heart to see transformation come into your life. Before you were ever a glimmer in your daddy's eye, your heavenly father saw you and he called your name in eternity past. and He chose you in Christ to be his child. Wow! That's amazing. And he looked down through time and space from eternity past and He sent the Word and by His powerful spoken word of authority through the gospel that is being preached from these imperfect clay lips this morning, He is issuing a call into your heart today and saying, You are mine and I am yours and with a, a, an indescribable kind of love like an ocean, you're drowning in my love this morning and I call you to myself. That's the gospel right there. The authority of Christ is that He has the ability to reach into your heart and call you in the same way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that He uses a donkey because that's the universal symbol of the rebellion of mankind. God likens in numerous places through the Old and the New Covenant the rebellion of man to that of an ass, to a wild donkey. And Some of you that are here this morning, no man has ever been able to tame you. 
But Jesus says, bring him, bring her to me. And when he sits down in the saddle, the heart of your life, it's amazing how all of that fight, all of that struggle, all of that jihad, all of that struggle against evil, all of those things that you don't have the strength or the ability to overcome, it's just in submission. I'm yours. And he begins to sit down and reign in your life. He is able by his power. And he's the one who is coming in peace. He comes to peace to offer shalom to your brokenness. And notice that it was found on a street, on a street corner. The authorized version says, in a place where two ways meet. Some of you are in this room this morning and you've been traveling away. You've, you feel like you've pretty much got a handle on it. But let me remind you, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, and in 16.25, it says the exact same thing. It repeats it the second time. It says, There is a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In other words, it looks good from the outside. It's a big, broad gate. It's, it's just where a lot of people are, and they've got great signs, and it's attractive, and it's drawing me to it. God says, But that way that you think is right, and it seems right to man, it ends in death. But there is a way. A straight gate, a narrow way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And He is that narrow gate. The Bible says that no man comes unto the Father except by me. Through Jesus, I am the way, the truth, the life. And this morning, you're tied like that little donkey in a place where two ways meet. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. And in that place, you're looking to see which way should I go. But the master has sent someone after you to come get you. And some of you are here this morning because somebody's been after you trying to get you down there at that crazy church at the mall. And you've shown up. Don't know quite what to think about it, but there's something that's in your heart that's just gripping your heart today. It's making you know that God is absolutely crazy about you in words that cannot be described. Come on, put your hands together. Praise your name, Jesus. So what is your response? What is my response this morning as I finish this message? It is complete, wholehearted worship. God, you're everything and I'm nothing. And I stop and I give you my heart. Take my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive my sins, Jesus. That's what he came and died for 2,000 years ago. He's coming riding into your heart for you to take off your cloak your identifier. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. Blind Bartimaeus threw off his beggar's garment because he was a new creation. God did something new. God wants you to throw off the old outer garment, put off the old man, and put on the new man in Christ. To be renewed in the image in which God originally created you. You were made. You were born to be an image bearer of the Most High God. And you've been lied to and you've lived the lie. And this morning, that changes because the spoken word, the authority, the dominion of Christ, he who is the prince of shalom is walking into your life and he's restoring everything that has been stolen and taken, everything that you've looked and longed for, can't find. You can only find it in him and in him alone.